0: Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Adam Black, Adam is head of ESG and sustainability for Collar Capital, a leading private equity secondaries firm headquartered in London. Adam's an environmental scientist by training, spending time earlier in his career with Halliburton, ERM, and KPMG's ESG advisory business. He made the move to private equity in 2008, first with Dodie Hansen, and then coming to Collar in 2016. Adam, it's a delight to have you here.
1: Thank you, Jen. It's really nice to join you.
0: So, Adam, it seems our industry has made some meaningful strides, particularly in Europe, and really baking ESG into investment operations, into decision-making, but that certainly wasn't always the case. And I, I'm guessing, based on our conversations, that you you were among the vanguard of sustainability specialists in private equity. And thinking back to those early days at Dottie Hansen, what Was the conversation then within your team about ESG and how did LPs respond at the time when you started to communicate about sustainability more explicitly?
1: Well, thinking back to those very early days, I was genuinely welcomed by the whole team, but there were some odd preconceptions among the minority. I can recall being asked if I was a capitalist in one interview, to which my only response was yes, of course, a responsible (laughs) one. Another colleague welcomed my involvement at a portfolio company, but then asked me not to implement anything too green. when I asked what he meant, he couldn't say. And all that was really before I'd even stepped onto a factory floor and been given a chance to implement anything. I think they soon realized that I knew what I was doing, had a great support network, but it was clear we thought differently about risk and opportunity. I often found myself educating colleagues That coming together of two worldviews was sometimes quite funny. Uh, There was, and there still is a difference in interpretation of certain words. For instance, back in 2009, I can remember talking about a supply chain issue with a colleague. We need to talk about peat, I said. Sure, but who's peat? He answered. After I explained we needed to talk about a soil type comprised of decomposed vegetable matter, important both as a carbon sink and for biodiversity, protected in most countries and so now being sourced from further afield, at great cost from unscrupulous suppliers. They kind of got the point. I think to bring ESG life for most deal teams, the focus was on making it real for them in commercial terms, often in direct financial terms, linking reductions in environmental footprint, cost savings and EBITDA, seeking new opportunities for more responsible products and services to help grow the top line, highlighting the amplification effect of the exit multiple and those direct ESG savings. And like the PEte example, highlighting those more intangible issues that ultimately come back to value and the value placed on a company's reputation. But for those die-hard skeptics, ESG had to hit them full in the face before it resonated. I'd often ask a deal team colleague to join me on site and we'd have them directly experience what the day job meant for certain colleagues on the factory floor. After having worn a full face respirator Tyvek suit and painted the inside of a turbine, you tend to remember the importance of good occupational health and the importance of research into low or zero solvent coatings. And direct involvement in crisis situations at portfolio companies Facing allegations of harm in the press also proved sobering for many. And seeing the supportive response of our ESG team, that helped enormously. And the same for our investors, the LPs. I mean, back then, only a handful asked about ESG. But those that did were extremely well informed. And we worked together a lot on thought leadership, on contributing to guidance. Of course, now there are many more LPs that have embraced ESG. And that's played a critical role in getting many more private equity managers on board. So to that extent now, you'd be hard pressed to find a manager in private equity without at least something to say about ESG or responsible investment. You You see many more examples of it in practice. Many more firms have brought in ESG leads. And many more are talking about the impact of ESG on their investment process and at the underlying company level. I particularly see that now globally at Collar, given our mandate as investors, and that's great, but I still find myself asking for more than incremental improvements with some of the macro challenges we face, notably around ecological system pressures and tipping points. It's been encouraging to note over recent months, moves by some managers towards real action grounded in science, not public relations, and I think we need much more of that and at scale.
0: I have to chuckle at the who's Pete (laughs) anecdote you just shared and, you know, certainly understand that in the early days it really was about, you know, for some being hit full in the face, kind of walking a mile in someone else's shoes to understand what the real risks and implications are, but also this compulsion to have to translate it into dollars for LPs. And just to stay on the LP reaction in those earlier days and how far we've come, I'm curious, did you have LPs who expressed skepticism about what you were trying to do and about the financial value of making some of these changes?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think really for those, it was the case studies that mattered because there were examples where you could show, you know, this is what the business looked like when we first invested and this is the journey we've been on. Here are some examples of where actually we, you know, money has been real money's been saved here. But more importantly, you know, this is how they compare against peers. And if we want to exit them smoothly for an IPO or make them really attractive to a trade player, then this is how they're going to stack up. This is the journey they need to go on. And this is the outcome we all want. And I think they started to see that these were just business issues, sort of speaking to them just in the same manner that we would with our investment colleagues, you know, about this being a commercial issue, being pragmatic. Accepting that there were certain issues that weren't going to happen immediately, I think really they're looking for that sort of it's trust in our industry. A lot is about trust and getting a sense that you know they're talking to someone who's been there, done that. Is competent It just gives them a level of comfort, much like in my role now. Collar, we're looking for a level of comfort among managers. You know, we invest we're ac- across the board globally, so we see all sorts of different practices. So we're very pragmatic in terms of where managers are at and what their approach to ESG is all about. You know, we'll work with them to move them forward. So, yeah, there was some scepticism, but I think when investors can see where you're coming from and and understand that you're there to help, yeah, they kind of came on board and realised that this, this wasn't a PR exercise. This was going to the heart of managing capital for them responsibly so more came on board and nowadays you see many more talking about ESG in a, a sensible pragmatic fashion
0: right and framing it as a set of business issues just feels inherently right and you call out the importance of trust i mean our industry is really built on trust and trusting in the science in the current moment i know can be uh, can be a bit problematic but really trusting in the science and how that relates back to business issues Talking a bit about how we define ESG, you you said a moment ago that, you know, there are certain terms that still feel open to interpretation. And I'll just yeah. say that, as you know, we hosted at ILPA a town hall for our members just a few weeks ago in September. And 40 percent of the attendees to that town hall said that they didn't have a formal definition of ESG there does seem to be some emerging clarity around certain issues, climate change and specifically carbon being one of them, and we'll talk about that. But sustainability, more broadly, still a bit subjective and no clear consensus as yet as to what we mean when we're talking about the S, beyond maybe diversity, equity, and inclusion, which we had spent to spend a lot of time on. And so we've got what is now the European Union Sustainable Finance Directive kind of on the cusp of going live and into implementation, next year, it will require greater disclosures from all market participants, asset allocators and owners, and asset managers across the EU. And I'm curious, as to your take, do policy initiatives like this one really push us towards a shared set of expectations and standards, or do they hurt?
1: I think, well, that's a great question, and there are lots of parts to it. To definitions, I mean, ESG was not a term I'd really come across until taking on that in-house role back in 2008. And when I heard it for the first time, I have to admit, I rolled my eyes thinking, oh, another term for a set of issues that many of us had studied or been working on for years. And as a term, I think it is a bit awkward and it's not really a thing, but it is what finance tends to use. So for me, I mean, it's an umbrella term. It captures a set of issues that people have, by and large, had to deal with for decades. In some cases, sadly, forever, like health, safety, slavery, pollution. I mean, obviously, some issues are much more recent, notably cyber risk, data governance. But I mean, from a UK perspective, some of the first English pollution laws can even be dated back to the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. So for me, ESG serves as a useful reference to identify those issues that really matter to a deal, to a company or a portfolio, But it's that we draw upon our experience in the field to sense check the questions we ask, the topics we focus on. And I think when properly understood, managed and viewed through a lens of both risk and opportunity, those ESG factors can help an investment be more responsible, more sustainable even. And I think for me, sustainability goes back to, you know, is it viable financially? And are we addressing its environmental and social impacts in the broadest sense? so as far as policy goes and policy initiatives and what's happening at a european level yeah i've thought about this a lot and on reflection i'm an advocate for regulation i've always found that the first movers will move first irrespective and they'll go beyond compliance but unfortunately that's no longer going to be enough we need the majority to act and to act globally so we need regulation the problem is that regulation is sometimes rushed, not fully thought through or not thought through in the context of the wider audience it will affect. So, yeah, I'm supportive of the leadership and regulation coming from Europe and elsewhere. But I think the key to its success will be in the technical guidance required to implement it, and particularly in respect of private equity, where a one-size-fits-all approach it won't work. And there's one thing I've learned about our industry, though, is that we like a challenge. We're good at cutting through complexity. There are very bright and motivated people in private equity. So we'll find a way to make it work. And we will not be afraid to say when it's not working. Because so, I mean, the last thing I want to see is additional bureaucracy. Because for me, that just leads to time wasting, literally fiddling while Rome burns in the case of ESG and can lead to greenwashing or ESG washing.
0: And greenwashing is something I wanted to spend a little time on with you I mean, to your point about pushing something through and sometimes in a rushed fashion or trying to apply a taxonomy, in the case of the Sustainable Finance Directive that applies to all asset classes and all underlying assets is inherently problematic. I hope you're right that our Mm -hmm. industry is sufficiently innovative and driven to cut through that and to figure out a way to comply that's also good for society, good for investment outcomes. But on the greenwashing point here in the U.S., we've seen the SEC take this up a little bit not not in a concrete fashion to this point, but starting to raise questions about whether or not statements in marketing documents from registered investment advisors line up with their actions. And so for the investors looking at these funds, these so-called ESG funds, whatever that means, are their managers actually delivering against those promises? So what do you make of these moves to start to apply some rigor some discipline to how firms are putting forward their bona fides when it comes to a record under this umbrella framework of ESG.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I mean, I'm not an expert in every jurisdiction's approach to policy and regulation, and nor should I be. But I am a realist, and I'm very worried now that I see many of the problems we studied in the late '80s take effect. So access to clean water, clean air, clean food. changing climate species lost and the impact that will increasingly have on our lives more so the impact on the lives and the pensions of our children so anything that either speeds up those problems or prevents them from being tackled we should all have a problem with so i have no problem when anyone raises questions about the authenticity of esg the products provided they too are coming from a place of authenticity And as a hybrid investor manager and LPGP, you know, we have a hybrid approach to ESG. We know there are limits to what we can do, and we're very clear about that. We don't overpromise, but you can be sure that we take full advantage of our mandate as influencers to do all we can to make a positive contribution. But I know it's at the level of the underlying manager and at the portfolio company level where the rubber really hits the road on ESG. And that's exactly what I've spent most of my 28 years of work doing. We can help set the roadmap, point people in the right direction, share information even. But ultimately, it's the manager and the company who are in the driving seat. So clarity of investment mandate and what that means from an ESG perspective is critical and welcome. But there have to be clear measurable outcomes on the issues that matter to an individual investment. Otherwise, we're just fiddling while Rome burns to my earlier point.
0: It's, it's it's such a visual metaphor. Thank you for that. You said something earlier that struck me, and that's, you know, we've made a lot of progress. But when it comes to some of these more abstract concepts, you, know, you mentioned ecological systems and, and the impact of investments there being maybe harder to quantify or harder to get to a concrete understanding. But that's not true when it comes to carbon, it seems. It does feel like we've made a lot more progress in terms of the specificity and, and to your earlier point, measuring outcomes. I know last year, Collar achieved climate neutral status and some other private equity firms, some other firms in our industry have done the same, EQT, Premier, Carlisle, Invest Industrial. But how difficult is it as a private equity firm to achieve carbon neutral status? And is it something other organizations in the industry should, can and should aspire to?
1: Yeah, we did achieve climate neutral status as some other LPs and GPs. My old firm achieved climate neutral status back in 2007. So, yeah, I'm fairly familiar with the process. I think we have to recognise that climate neutral at the level of the firm is very much a first step. Meaningful carbon reduction and the journey towards net zero at the level of the underlying companies is where the real impact lies. But we think it sets the right tone particularly when speaking to underlying managers about a holistic approach to climate risk and encouraging them to act. And achieving climate neutral status is always going to be a firm wide effort to collect the data on firm level emissions, to get more accurate data and to reduce the footprint where it's possible to do so. But it's working with a trusted partner to help do that and to help source credible offsets. That's essential. Well, as I said, the bigger impact is for the industry as a whole to reduce carbon at the level of the underlying funds. And we see that as being a collective effort, one that will involve carbon reduction, alternative ways of doing things and making things and the use of carbon offsets. Yet, yeah, carbon offsets can't be the sole focus, but for now they are required. So accessing reputable, meaningful and authentic offsets is going to be key. And I think the University of Oxford's recent publication, the Oxford Principles for Net Zero Aligned Carbon Offsetting, are really welcome in that regard. And similarly, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which campaigns for rigorous carbon targets, including the use of offsets where necessary, is also going to be a critical benchmark for how companies should go about achieving net zero carbon emissions. So at the firm level, it's obviously more simplistic than addressing carbon reduction at the portfolio level. And for me, it just sets the tone. You know, you're walking the walk. And I think, as for our investment partners, they take some comfort in the fact that we try to walk the walk as well as talk the talk.
0: And you raise a point that I'm not sure many are thinking that hard about, which is the credibility of the offsets, because there's been so much emphasis on offsets and not really, to your point, getting down into becoming carbon negative. So I I just wanted to call that out as I think something worth investigation. And certainly, I hope listeners will take advantage of the resources that you just mentioned. Turning a bit to standards in the industry around how you report your actual outcomes, I know that Collar is about to or just has published your most recent ESG report, where you've surveyed your own GPs, 92 of your GPs, and over half of those, 62 percent, they're signatories to some set of ESG principles, but more than half of those GPs are aligned with something other than the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment. So perhaps they're following the AIC's principles or Invest Europe's professional handbook. Are these various guidelines really meaningful? And going back to your point about authenticity, in terms of directing practices in a concrete way in... Why aren't more GPs, PRI signatories or signatories to any ESG guidelines?
1: So I think from time spent certifying companies to international management standards, you only get out of something what you put in it. So if you don't view the PRI or any other set of principles or management standards as something that's going to improve your business, just don't bother because you'll be wasting time, effort and money and you'll probably be delisted anyhow. What I'd say is make them meaningful by embracing them and focus on how they can improve your investment process and use to achieve better ESG outcomes. But do you need such principles to achieve better ESG outcomes? No, of course not, but they are a great framework to implement a programme and to some extent benchmark an asset class. And the PRI in particular is internationally recognised and it is a great source of information for signatories. I'm not saying that any of the principles or standards out there are perfect, because nothing is. But when properly implemented and embraced as part of what you already have in-house, they can be a value add. And that's what we tell underlying managers. You know, we're not the ESG police, but we do expect more than lip service. And we are looking for evidence of implementation and for those better outcomes. to be frank, I'm more interested in culture and commitment to ESG than anything else. And I think what outcomes you get tells you all you need to know about culture. So really, it's up to to you as a firm. Whether you sign up to something is a business decision. We would just encourage people to take it seriously, to recognize the advantages that signing up to any of these standards has. But just focus on the outcomes you want, and then they'll work better for you.
0: And your point about lip service is is a good one. And I'm also struck by the fact that you said the outcomes tell you all you need to know about culture. But you've also said that the way in which a GP approaches ESG in their conversation, for example, with portfolio companies, with LPs, is a, a really strong indication of how well that business is run, the firm. And so in your view, how does a GP's Embrace of whatever guidelines they follow or focus on outcomes with respect to ESG. How does that point to other areas in the business that LPs should Mm. be particularly attuned to?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I I mean, I've worked all over the world, very fortunate. I've worked in all sorts of industries with all sorts of people, seen amazing examples of ESG in practice, and had firsthand experience of dealing with the consequences of bad ESG, sometimes they've been fatal consequences, more often than not, those outcomes have come down to human factors, to organizational culture and behavior. And it's the reason I got into ESG in the first place. For me, it was 10 p.m., 6th of July, 1988. It was the moment 167 oil workers lost their lives when the Piper Alpha platform exploded in the North Sea. My father worked in the industry, so I know what impact it had what a game changer it was for the sector as a whole. And it was a classic example of production being put before safety. So I'm a firm believer in ESG being symptomatic of how well-run a company is. And after nearly 30 years working in sustainability and looking people in the face, you just get to know. If a manager we diligence is open and honest about what they have and do not have in place, then we're more inclined to say, that's great, thanks. Now let's do something together, let's build on that. And we know from academic research and some from, of us from direct experience that the more profitable businesses tend to be those that are more diverse, have greater diversity of thought. I know from experience that companies with strong environmental and safety records tend to make money. And recent studies have shown that companies with strong cybersecurity can outperform the market by 7%. I mean, I'm not an academic researcher, but all of this supports what I've seen in the field over many years. And so for me, the same is as true of a private equity manager as it is for any other organisation. And I'm reminded of something my first mentor at work told me. If a CEO cannot look you in the eye and talk with honesty and integrity about these issues, the chances are they'll be gone within a year, either for ESG failures or wider business failures. And I found that to be true. It's just that some are better at hiding it for longer than others, but what goes around comes around. So in an investment context, you know, why should we pay a premium for a secondary portfolio if the manager cannot tell us what impact a changing climate will have on certain assets reliant on a secure water supply? Because it's when you audit a company and truly audit them on ESG, what you're doing is seeking to understand what makes them tick and how they do things. For me, ESG is the litmus test for how well run it is. So that leaking storage tank, that plume of smoke, the product safety issue, the workforce dispute, the workplace injury, those human rights issues within a supply chain, that lack of response to your question about water scarcity, those are all symptoms and you need to find the root cause. And it's that root cause that will likely be affecting other aspects of how that business functions a lack of training, a lack of competence, a lack of budget, a lack of foresight. And as I said, I believe it's the management of ESG factors that's symptomatic of how well-run a company is. And that's as true for a private equity manager as it is for any other business.
0: I think so eloquently put to zero in on the lack of foresight that you called out. So to turn to you, Adam, but kind of staying in a similar lane here, as an environmental scientist, I'm guessing that you like to spend some of your free time in nature. So what's your favorite spot to escape to any anywhere in the world?
1: Well, obviously I'm British, so you know there are many beautiful places all over the UK from the Highlands of Scotland down to where I grew up in the far South of England. So thinking of home, for me it would be the Ashdown Forest in Sussex, and that's just 30 miles South of London, a world away from the city. And it's also where A.A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh. So my kids love going there too. But, yeah, I'm fortunate to have travelled extensively for work. So if I were to pick another country that's had a real impact on me, it would have to be India. And one place in India close to me is Goa. The people, the food and the beaches, just, yeah, they're just amazing.
0: Adding both to my, my uh, bucket list, Adam. Um, <laughs> so what are you doing when you're not at work how are you spending a beautiful Saturday?
1: Well, now on a Saturday, most weekends I spend taking my six and four year old girls to various activities. But yeah, when I get the time, I like to go fishing, chilling out by a lake or a river, or following Ipswich Town FC, my football team, soccer team, listening to the results come in on a Saturday afternoon.
0: And what's your favourite fish to go after? trials <laughs> 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 wonderful well adam this has been a true pleasure thank you so much for spending some time with me today
1: thanks Jen. you're welcome